Daniel chapter 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, the chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate, and of the wine that he drank. And they were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. But God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king, who assigned your food and your drink. Why should he see that you are in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. At the end of ten days, it was seen that they were in better appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of eunuchs brought them before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. You may be seated. Well, whenever I read about a passage about food at this time of the morning, I begin to feel hungry. So, of course, that's not what this passage is about. Well, um, now this sermon uh, is um, one of those sermons uh, where it's pretty much impossible to keep everyone happy. Now, of course, that isn't the goal of sermons, to keep everyone happy, uh, by the way. Um, uh, But, you know, so... uh, The idea of a sermon is to uh, bring God's truth from God's Word in a way that will cause people under the work of God's Holy Spirit to honor God, 
be captivated by, his, by Jesus. The goal of the sermon is worship, right? Uh, you know, of course, some preachers are deliberately, you know, all truth, no love. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that this sermon in particular is um, tricky to communicate in a way that connects because this whole area of culture how we live faithfully in this culture, that's, a, that's an area that people have very different views on uh, today. So for instance, if you're not a Christian here today, I want you to know that when, you know, in the title for the sermon it says pagan empire, and that of course sounds uh, a little bit like something out of Star Wars on, on the bad side, um, you know, the Babylonian Empire with all its cruelty and taking the Israelites captive and, and all of that. That's the context of this book of Daniel. I, I, I want you to know that I understand there are lots of ways of looking at the world today. If you're a religious person, you probably, you, you sort of think, or at least you've heard uh, preachers indicate that, you know, the world is going to hell in a handbasket, it's leaving behind family values and God and tradition, you know. But if you're, if you're not a religious person, you probably look at that old-fashioned sort of moral majority thing, and you may well just see a power move uh, to try to get people to do what they don't want to do. And don't we live in a free country? You know? But it's actually even more complicated than that because within the religious world, um, th- th- there's a real difference within the Christian community on various sort of polar spectrums, but particularly between different generations. So if you're part of the older generation here today, you probably think, I don't know, I'll tell you what you think, but I've had a lot of conversations with folks, so, or at least you've heard preachers say that what we need to do is rally the troops and take back America, and draw more lines in the sand, take more and stronger ethical stands on issues. Now, Daniel does have something to say about that. I love how Charles Spurgeon preached Daniel. Actually, at the end of uh, one of Spurgeon's sermons, uh, when uh, at the end of his sermons, when they were when they, when they were published, uh, they also told you what hymn they sang at the same time. They were publishing the whole uh, sort of entranceway into the whole worship service because preaching is worship. And one of the hymns, uh, they published one of the hymns that they would sing. And the hymn that they sang after he preached on Daniel was an old song called Dare to Be a Daniel. And of course, you know, whether you know that song or not, and I didn't, but apparently people used to sing it. It's all about taking a stand. So there is that. But there's more than that. And if you're part of the younger generation here today, your instinct, that is, that is if you're kind of under 35 or something like that, Uh, your instinct is probably, 
Again, I don't want to tell you what you think, but I've had a lot of conversations with people over the years. Your instinct is probably more how do we help people today not misunderstand what we mean by Jesus or by God? So they think, whoever they are, those people out there, they think we mean something angry or nasty. And actually, we mean something quite different. So then, you know, what are the unbiblical stumbling blocks that we can remove to find a way to communicate clearly, properly, connect? So anyway, I'm just saying at the start of the sermon, I'm just acknowledging... (laughs) Uh, that people are going to hear even the phrase pagan empire in quite different ways and, and also have different ideas about who the bad guys are today. Now, of course, here in the Bible, the pagan empire, well, that's pretty clear. It's Babylon. And that was just about as bad as it could get. For the Israelites, they'd been taken captive, their city had been burnt, horrible, horrible stuff had happened. Um, A whole bunch of them have now become refugees in a different country. This is pretty extreme. And in the context of of Daniel, um, the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, or as uh, um, VeggieTales likes to say, Nebuchadnezzar, um, Nebuchadnezzar had this policy to pick the, uh, the best and the brightest young kids. They were actually probably really quite young, probably teenagers. Uh, and we think that just because of how long Daniel lived. And uh, take them to be trained in the ways of Babylon. Now, that's what new ideologies, new empires, uh, dictatorships, that's what they've always done. How do you hold on to uh, your ideology through the next generation? Well, you educate the children, the next generation. So that's what they're doing. Um, but they're, they're more than just teenagers. They are the elites. We're told they're the best, the, the brightest. We're also told they're the best looking you know, not only are they very high IQ, they could be on the front of G, uh, GQ or whatever it is, you know. Uh, well, it just came out spontaneously. What a, you know. <laughs> and uh, so they're taken to be trained, right, in some sort of elite school. It's like the elite undergraduate uh, school of Babylon for three years. It's an undergraduate course in the learning of Babylon. And, of course, the the tension of the story is, here's Daniel, he's an Israelite. Here are his three friends. What's going to happen? Are they going to compromise? Are they going to live for God? And if they're going to live for God, how how on earth are they going to do that? And then, you know, what are we going to learn from that in our context today? This is a hugely important thing for many people. How are we going to train the next generation to live lives of genuine faith in secular culture? How are we going to figure out what it means to hold on to family values, to to live morally in a morally pure way? When we're bombarded these days with images of that, you know, how are we going to do it? I want to encourage us this morning. The Bible 
has a lot to say about that. There's a lot of times when you find people in that kind of situation in the Bible. Joseph in Egypt. Esther, I'm going to mention her a little bit again at the end of the sermon. Here in Daniel, well, what do we learn? They, they do three things. They have a perspective, and then there is contextualization. I'll explain what I mean by that. Perspective, contextualization, and then there's a lesson about where to draw the line. Okay? How to dare to be a Daniel. So perspective, contextualization, and then where to draw the line. So first, perspective. And by perspective, what the passage means by this, what I mean by it is looking at things from God's point of view. Now, actually, this passage is brilliantly structured. uh, It's got three sections. And each of these three sections is demarcated by a repeated phrase, and the repeated phrase is, and God gave. So verse 2, and the Lord gave. You've just got to imagine how extraordinary this is. What an extraordinary perspective this is. They've been taken, Jerusalem has been burnt and pillaged, they've been taken into exile, people have been killed, and the Lord gave. Really? I thought that was Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar II, he's, he's known to historians as the great, this, this, I mean, you know, Veggie Tales, Nebuchadnezzar, but actually this was a hugely powerful man. I mean, in Babylon, the, the, the hanging gardens of Babylon, the, the massive wealth of this empire, you know, this is, no, actually, the Lord gave. Well, how did Daniel become convinced of this? Well, we, we, we can trace this throughout the story of Daniel. Later in Daniel, we find him praying that God would have mercy on his people. And the thinking in his prayer, you, could, you can trace the thinking. It's based on his reflection on the scriptures. This is the kind of thing that's going to happen, by the way, as we dig into the Bible and read through the Bible as a church this year. We'll begin to make connections and applications to a worldview, a perspective. And for Daniel... He realized Moses had prophesied that God's people would go into exile a long time before him. The prophet Jeremiah had prophesied that the exile would only last a certain amount of time. And so Daniel, towards the end of that amount of time, begins to pray, claim God's promises. And say, Lord, you've promised that if your people who are called by your name would humble themselves and turn to you, repent of their sins, you would bring them back to their land, you would bless their land. Would you do that? I repent. We repent. Would you today bring us back? That's his thinking. And so now, when we get to the beginning of Daniel, Daniel's reflecting on everything that he's learned in his life. And what he can say is, the Lord gave. The Lord gave. It's, it's hard that, isn't it? It's, it? it's so easy to forget this truth that we sing about, that we believe when something bad happens. Now, my dear friends, my, my beloved, as uh, the Apostle Peter put it, beloved, 
the Bible doesn't think of God as looking the other way when something when you get cancer. When you get cancer, he's not looking the other way. Or when a ministry you're involved in shuts down, he's not looking the other way. Or when someone you love dies, God's not looking the other way. He gave that too. You say, well, that's, that's hard to believe. Well, yes, it is. But I want you to think with me about the alternative. The alternative is that God is not in control. And what that means is he can't bring good out of it. So wouldn't you rather believe that... Um, you know, using C.S. Lewis's sort of analogy that, you know, it was California yesterday and today it's the Arctic, right? And it, it feels like it's always winter and never Christmas at the moment for you, as C.S. Lewis would put it. Wouldn't you rather believe that Aslan is coming? Oh, come, Lord, as the choir sang. Aslan is coming. That he, he, Jesus came, that his spirit is sent, that he's at work now. Lord, would you come now? That he's returning. And you can know that because even the wicked witch is under God's control. Actually, Nebuchadnezzar is called in the Bible God's servant. Not because he was consistently pious. There's a wonderful moment when he is apparently giving praise to God, whether that sticks or not, I don't think we know. But not because he was consistently pious, but because God used even this and even Nebuchadnezzar. So there's that divine perspective on bad things, but then almost as important, there's a divine perspective on good things. Look at verse 9. God gave. He gave Daniel favor. You see, this is how this works. If you don't have a divine perspective on bad things, what's going to happen? You're going to get bitter. But if you don't have a divine perspective on good things, what's going to happen then? You're going to get proud. I did it. Well, no, you didn't. Not really. He did it. You just happened to be around when it happened. We find this hard in our culture. Talking about culture. In our culture today, it's a culture of technique. And in a way, this is one of these things in the culture that's rarely criticized from the pulpit. Because, frankly, it's been so baptized within the, the Christian church that we kind of think of it as ours. But it's a culture of technique. You, know, you do this, that, and the other. You follow these rules, and you'll have a huge church, you know, or, or a big business. I mean, there are so many books you can read that say this. Follow these four steps. And um, I've been to those conferences, right? And the guy stands up with this huge success and he says you just do what I do and it will happen to you that's basically the message right 
You know, <laughs> sometimes I, I, some, someday I would love to go to a conference where they had this, you know, big named pastor of this huge church that, you know, you know grew up, grew around his ministry from, you know, 15 to 40,000 in three and a half weeks or whenever, whatever. You know, it's like, whoa. And then he says, well, I did it this way. You can too. I would love instead if he, well, someone like that stood up and said, you know, frankly, we have no idea how it happened. Let's study the Bible. Wouldn't that be great? It'd be so freeing because that's the truth. God did it. We just happened to be around when it happened and we were faithful. We'll get to the art side, but God did it. Good things. Uh, but then also, look at verse 17, the third of this sort of tripart structure here. There's another part to the structure I'll show towards the end, but there is this tripart structure. Verse 17, God gave. What did he give here? He gave them learning. Now, <laughs> probably if I was preaching in a different church, I wouldn't make so much of this, but this, you know, we're in college church. We're right next to Wheaton College. You know, sometimes I look out here on Sunday mornings, and I think we have more PhDs than people in the room. You know what I mean? Some of you have two PhDs. I know who you are, you know. And um, so we have to think, those of us, you know, uh, who work in the world of IQ, um, where did that come from? Was it, our, was it our genes, our genetic heritage? Well, maybe. Was it because we worked hard? Yeah, maybe. But actually here, a better perspective is God gave it. God gave you the ability to do well at school. Now, you say, why does that matter? Well, it matters because of community. What that means for a church like us is the people who have two or three or five PhDs or whatever are no better than the person who flunked out of high school. We need each other. There are different gifts in this body. Here's how it also matters, the person in the academic career. If you don't have this, and I've seen this with people, if you don't have this perspective that God gave it, it may be you won't stay orthodox. Because you'll feel the pressure to come up, you know, publish or die, as they say in the academic world. You'll feel the pressure to come up with all sorts of creative ways to get a reputation, to be edgy academically. Because you're not really secure that it's, you've got to prove yourself. It's not something God gave you. But if it is, if it's just what God gave you, you'll just be faithful. So there is that part of this passage. Uh, perspective. Uh, a huge further part of this discussion I'm not going to get into is what on earth it means to have a Christian culture anyway. If you want to get into that, you should read Don Carston's Christ and Culture Revisited. So perspective, second contextualization. Now that sounds like a complicated sort of ministry word and it's just a sort of title for something that's really hugely important at a practical level. Let me break it down for you. If we don't get this, we won't really communicate, we, we, we won't really connect, we'll be misheard, we'll come across as just being against everything. Now look at how Daniel does it. Daniel doesn't, he, he does draw the line somewhere, we'll get there, but he doesn't draw the line everywhere. He contextualizes. He doesn't say, you know, stuff you and your Babylonian magic. I mean, he has been trained in, in the arts of, as put here, the magicians and enchanters. 
And by the way, the, 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 one of those words there refers back to the magicians that Moses encountered in the courts of the Pharaoh in Egypt. It's one of the ways, in terms of contextualizing, that the author is saying, you know, we've seen this stuff before and God's in charge of it. But he doesn't say as he's been sort of trained on all this, you know. I, I mean, this, this, this sort of Babylonian enchanter thing is a lot worse than any kind of postmodern relativism you might get at Harvard, right? Yet he goes to the classes, he takes the notes. He's not looking to be a martyr. He doesn't have a martyr complex. You know, things are going to get worse and we're going to get persecuted and then God will show up. Well, really, well, maybe, but you don't ask to get thrown to the lions, do you? You contextualize it. And actually here, I mentioned one of the names already that are used here about the magicians. Because there's different languages at work in this book. There's Hebrew, there's Aramaic, and then there's a little bit of Arcadian and other languages here that show the context in this sort of Babylonian time. Names here become very important. The way they're indicating how they are resisting some things, with, almost with humor, and how they are wisely and humbly and lovely engaging other things. It's around the names. Names are important. Turkey, it was Constantinople. It's now Istanbul. That's saying something. Uh, JFK Airport, after JFK President. Well, it's called JFK Airport. It's not called, I don't know who you think was the worst president of the United States ever, but it's not called James Buchanan Airport, right? Uh, Names matter. They mean something. They're saying something. And uh, here, they are given names, right? So verse, verse 7, Daniel called Belshazzar, and I called Shadrach, all these names that, you know, everyone gets tongue-tied over. They're called names. And actually, scholars think these names have been sort of messed around with. It's almost as if they're finding a way to sort of uh, communicate as they, as they tell about this story. They don't believe this stuff because these names were given to them to say, well, you're not really serving, you know, Daniel means the Lord judges. But here, no, 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 it's Belteshazzar. God will protect you. But they don't communicate it quite like that. The God as in the God, pagan God, Bel. No, but they don't communicate it like that. They mess around with it as if it's not really, so it can't really mean what the Babylonians were trying to get them to think it means. They've been cunning as serpents, but innocent as doves. And actually, even Nebuchadnezzar's name, one scholar thinks, has been similarly messed around with. It, it, it probably meant something like this in the original language. Uh, May Nabu, the pagan god, protect the eldest son. But these teenagers are messing around with these names, and instead they communicated here to mean something like the equivalent of, May, uh, instead, May Nabu protect the mule. Which is, you know, making a point. It's sort of like Charlie Chaplin's uh, movie of, uh, of Adolf Hitler, The Little Dictator. You know, sort of, <laughs> who does he think he is? Um, but then you see, so there's some <laughs> resistance. But then there's also careful humility and love which doesn't preach so well, but is probably more important. 
you see how Daniel's wisdom and how he deals with this official, this this chief of the eunuchs, verse 10. Again, using one of the Babylonian terms, the official, indicating how much Daniel knew what was going on. This chief of the eunuchs, he's been given favor with him, and then Daniel befriends him. He's careful. Uh, The chief of the eunuchs says, well, I can't do this because this is going to happen to me, and my life is in danger. And Daniel, what does he do? He comes up with an idea. He says, well, we're in class, and we're taking tests, so how about we come up with another test? Let's just see. Let's test. The hypothesis that actually if we do this, we'll come up healthier. And they do. Wisdom. Canny. Being canny. Canniness. Shrewd in a positive sense. Care. Respectful dealing with people with whom we disagree. All these qualities you see in Daniel. Think of it as being a missionary. We've got a lot of missionaries here in the church, and uh, missionaries have to think like this a lot. Uh, one of the great missionaries uh, in church history is Hudson Taylor. Some of you will know that name. Part of what made Hudson Taylor so effective in mission was his understanding of this, contextualization. So Taylor, Hudson Taylor didn't live in the compound with the other Western missionaries and this sort of separated group from which they went and made forays into the pagan culture. No, he didn't do that. He lived with the people. The Chinese, he wore their clothes. This was hugely controversial in Christian culture at the time, what he was doing. He seemed to be identifying with them, and in a sense he was. He was loving them. And of course, you cannot do that unless you have the first, the perspective, the divine perspective. All truth is God's truth. If it's true, it's God's truth. God is the creator of the whole world, the universe. It's fallen, but he made it. We worship the God who made everything. So he's, he's not just involved in the, in the current events. The things you read about in the news or watch on whatever webpage you go to. He's not just involved in them. He gave them. God's plan cannot be thwarted. And what that means at a practical level is you can contextualize. You can say, well, they've given us these names by pagan gobs, but we think they're actually nonsense. We're going to pronounce them wrong so we keep our sanity. And this official who's trying to get us to do something that we cannot compromise on, well, let's think about it from his point of view. Now, I'm just going to talk for a moment to those of us who are Christians here. And if you're not a Christian, you can listen in. I hope this will give you encouragement. One of the big things Christians need to learn from Daniel's understanding of this pagan official is love. He got him. He entered his world. He appreciated his pressures. We call it loving our neighbor. You know, okay, yeah, I wouldn't like to have to risk my life over a bunch of vegetables either. Let's find a way through. Perspective, contextualization, both resistance and then finding a way wisely to engage. But then there is this final lesson, this dare to be a Daniel, this drawing the line. But where do you draw the line? Now, and how do you do it? Now, as I said, this chapter is structured around these three and God gave, but there's a, there's a pivot 
um, a central part of the, of the structure as well in verse 8, right in the middle. So look with me at verse 8 and you'll see. It says, but Daniel resolved. It's actually highly dramatic. So you get the first section. Third year, the reign of uh, Jehoiakim. Well, we know he's just a vassal king. Kind of king, kind of wasn't. Nebuchadnezzar does all these. Wow, Nebuchadnezzar does this. All this bad stuff happens from these people coming to destroy God's people. And all the Israelites are entirely passive about it from this account. Nothing. They're not taking any action. They're not doing anything. It's just happening to them. But then, verse 8, but Daniel... Now there is in the active voice something that one of God's people is doing. Daniel resolved. We've got this huge empire. This one guy. Daniel resolved. See the drama? Now, having sort of set that up dramatically, we need to pull back for a moment and think. Why does he draw the line here? It seems kind of bizarre. Some people say it was just food offered to idols. You know, that was the issue. These, this food, because it's a, a pagan ancient culture whereby everything was religious in the time. There was no separation of church and state. And therefore, if it was the king's food, then it could well have been idols' food as well. And therefore, he didn't eat of it or drink of it. That's possible. The trouble with that interpretation is that in the New Testament we find Paul teaching that as uh, you know, what does meat offer matter? What does drink offer? What does it matter? I won't cause offense to my brothers, but it means nothing. And so, how on earth do you interpret that with that context? And anyway, we it doesn't actually say this was meat offered to idols, so we don't know. Other people say this was about Old Testament ritual purity laws. You know, this food was not kosher. It may have been pork. You know, here are Daniel, would you like some pig? No thanks, uh, you know. Oh, that's also possible. But I think the difficulty with saying that is the issue is, is it seems so random. I mean, why? Why make a big deal of that? You've got to again, imagine what's going on. These magicians, all the literature, you, you, can, you, don't, you don't want to, trust me, but you can look at the literature of Babylon and how much was uh, sort of threaded through with evil magic. and oh, This is the stuff they're having to sit through. And then he takes, he takes a stand here on vegetables, I mean. It seems, I was saying this to some of the guys who were talking this through this week in the staff team. It seems to me a little bit like, you know, if you have to go and. Yeah, I'm sorry, I'm mentioning Star Wars again. I promise I won't ever again uh, for at least two weeks. But, you know, it'd be a bit like having to sit down and take lessons with Darth Vader about the dark side and then sort of, you know, actually, I'm not going to eat that, uh, you know, your um, Kentucky fried chicken or whatever it is, you know. It just seems. Get some perspective here, Daniel. Why are you drawing the line here? Now, what I think is, and what I'm going to commend to you, is that Daniel, having been put in a position, he didn't initiate. 
they initiated. He then says, this far and no further. He's drawing a line in the sand. He's saying, okay, you can change my name. I can, you know, I can sit in those classes and learn about your magic tricks. You can take me from my home and try to indoctrinate me. Nothing I can do about that. But there is a point beyond which I will not go. You see, you have to draw the line somewhere. And if you spend your whole life uh, taking... Uh, a stand. I have one friend who had an older relative who uh, she said about this older relative that she was always giving people a piece of her mind and they wondered whether she'd given so many people a piece of her mind she had no mind left, you know. There are people like that, aren't there? You know, you give them half a chance and they'll take a stand. They're just crying out to be a martyr. You know, if we take a stand everywhere, the culture's just going to hear us as angry. You know, aren't they for anything? Yeah, we're for Jesus, we're for love, we're for biblical truth, we're for building a culture, we're for true freedom. But if you never draw a line, you'll be no different from the culture around. Now, that might indeed appear a little random to some people watching on, as perhaps it does even to you as you look at this passage. I remember one good friend of mine who sold all his huge collection of secular music. He, uh, he was become, he'd become a Christian, so he decided to get rid of it. Why he sold it, I'm not sure whether it's better to make money out of secular music rather than keep it. But anyway, there you go. He, he, he sold his collection. He's much older now. He, 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 now he doesn't think he needed to have done that. He, he wouldn't do it now. It, it's kind of funny because he sold his collection and I didn't. And we're both now pastors. I'm not sure what that says. But anyway... Um, But at the time, I think, you know, this is what it does say. At the time, it was him saying, for him, thus far, no further. I drew the line at a different uh, moment in my life. One of the, I used to love playing sports, and I'm suffering uh, every day as a result as I get older. But um, I used to love playing sports, and one of the sports clubs, uh, teams I was a part of, had a ritual hazing thing. Uh, you had to drink a certain amount in one evening uh, anyway. Well, the, the, and so I couldn't do that. So I go to the captain of the team. I tell him I can't do that. He looks at me like I'm insane. He asks why. I say I'm a Christian. Then he really thinks I'm insane. I, remember, I still remember, I can see his face. He had kind of red hair. He's about this high. And I can see what happened to his eyes. He just kind of blinked and then said, Okay. I drew a line. You've got to take a stand somewhere. You've got to say, you know, for other people, going to that movie or going to that pub might be okay, but I know my limits. You can do it in the academic world. Uh, I know a guy who just made made sure early in his academic career to take little stands in some of his published papers so that if anyone, you know, when anyone actually read those papers that he published when he was 25 or something later in his career, when he was famous, right, they would be able to point them out to him and say, you know, you believe this. It would hold him to account. 
doesn't mean you can't be wise. Daniel was wise too. He contextualized bravery about wisdom as of little virtue. It's, it's, at least it's not the ideal. It's cunning as serpents but innocent as doves. That's the Jesus teaching on this and that's what Daniel is doing here. I knew someone when he was being trained uh, for the ministry. He was past the church while, where, while I was studying when he was trained, he was trained with the idea that there, weren't just, there wasn't just one Isaiah in the Old Testament. There were actually three Isaiahs, and that's an idea that's out there. Um, three, by the way, I'm talking about Isaiah, in case you're confused. Um, and now he didn't believe that, but he was asked to write a paper on the three Isaiahs. That was the task, and so what's he going to do? So what's, he used to love to tell this story, what he did was instead of writing on how there are actually three Isaiahs, he decided to prove that really there were ten Isaiahs. And he got top marks, top grade. You know, well done, really. You know, bah, wow, that's creative thinking. Thank you. Um, you can do it in business. Um, doing our tax returns that way is, strictly speaking, legal but that is not going to be good for our people and therefore we're not going to do it here's one phrase that may help it's an old phrase but perhaps it'll help land this part of the sermon for you if you stand for nothing you'll fall for everything or to put it here in this context, you've, it's a risk, I understand that. But you've got to at some point say, some point in this culture, that is in this world, however good this culture gets, it won't be heaven. We're in a fallen world. At some point, all of us have to say, you know, this is the hill I die on. Don't miss that for Daniel. You know, he was risking his life. Daniel in the lion's den, Daniel with the writing on the wall right here. Daniel is in this vicious empire's capital city. He could have been killed, but he knew he had to take a stand somewhere, and he did. Now, you say, well, that's fine. I would like to do that. You persuaded me with your rhetoric. I would like to have this divine perspective. I would like to be wise and know how to contextualize without compromise. I'd like to dare to be a Daniel and have that kind of strength and bravery. I'd like to, but you've got to understand my position, Pastor. I can't. Maybe it's something personal for you. I just can't take a stand against my lust, perhaps you say. I've tried, but I can't. Or maybe it's at work. Look, if I, if I take a stand at work, you've got to understand, I, I, I have a family to feed. Or maybe it is in your academic career. Look, if I write something that people might disagree with, but I know is biblical in that area, you, you've, you, I'll never get tenure. Never. Might as well just throw my career away. And you know, I'd like to be a Daniel. I, I'd, like, I'd like that, but I just can't. Well, I've got good news for you. I know you can't because I can't either. 
God knows you can't. That's why Daniel is here in the Bible. See, we tend to think of the Bible, don't we, as all about religious people because we, we read it in church. And, but actually, some of the biggest heroes, we'll be thinking about that at the men's conference in a couple of weeks, some of the biggest heroes in the Bible were not clerics or ministers or religious situations. Joseph, basically prime minister at Pharaoh's court in Egypt. Esther, well, she is, Esther was in a harem. I mean, think about that. God put her there, and she, she figures out a way to be faithful. Talking about someone who took a stand. That's an amazing story. I'd love to preach on sometime. And then Daniel. Daniel, basically the chief advisor to, 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 the, to the king. He's top chair in the Babylonian University. And God knows you can't take a stand. That's why Daniel is here. You, you say, well, how does that help? You've got to see what Daniel saw. See, Daniel was a dreamer, a visionary. Do you know what he saw? It's in chapter 7. He saw the Son of Man, a divine figure, majestic, beautiful, all-powerful. And you know who that is? Jesus tells us. Jesus says, it's me. I'm the son of man. Look, these visions that Daniel has, that's how we can do it. He did it. Some people, a lot of people struggle with it. You know, the first part of Daniel is so practical, and then he gets all dreamy and visionary. No! It's because he saw the Son of Man that he was able to take a stand. It's because he was filled with God's perspective. God gave, God gave, God gave. Jesus is able to answer the questions of the, of the Pharisees in his case. Should we pay taxes or not, Rabbi? Well, show me that coin and whose face is on it? Caesar's. Render to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. <laughs> Talk about being wise. See, you can't live a successful Christian life, but he can, he did, and that means you can too. How, you say? You, you, You've got to, this is why, as I say, a sermon, the church service, this is about worship. When we gather together, we are setting our vision on what Daniel saw. You've got, you've got to see what Daniel saw. Listen, if you get a vision from God's word of the Son of Man striding across history, I'll tell you one thing, eating only vegetables will not be any big sacrifice. Turning off that computer so that you're not always giving in to lust will not feel like a sacrifice. If you get a vision of the Lord of all eternity, the Lord of eternity, the great I am, 
from his word, if you see him, then giving your life for him will not appear a big sacrifice. You'll be able to say, this is the hill I die on because, you know, if I do die, (laughs) it's better by far. Jesus put it like this. He's the pearl of great price. It's the kingdom of God. It's the pearl of great price. And you'll just buy the field so you can have the pearl. You'll have that perspective. It won't be hard to believe that his purpose for redemption in our world is unstoppable. I don't care who the president is. I mean, I do. I pray for the president. But for this I don't care who the king is. It begins with Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, chapter 1. And you know how it ends? There's a different king. Now it's Cyrus. The Lord gave. If you've got a vision of a Lord of eternity, God gave this, even the bad stuff, this cancer. He's got a purpose this he gave that all comes from him he's working out his purposes if you get this you'll have the wisdom too why because you'll be able to say instead of going okay i've got to figure this out i've got to make my lists i've got to read these books i've got to go to these seminars no you first of all you'll stop you'll get on your knees and say lord you promised that you'll give wisdom to those who ask would you give it to me that'll humble you and then it will lift you up with that vision of what God gave the grace of God in Jesus Christ then you will wisely with love contextualization draw a line in the sand let's pray together Lord, we uh, pause at the end of this morning saying, open our eyes, Lord, that we may behold glorious, glorious things in your word. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, 
and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Oh Lord, we thank you that is true. Would you help us to live our lives faithfully today with that vision in the name of Jesus. Amen.